Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first-time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host, she's obsessed with hot chips and aioli sauce, Leanne Hughes. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you create unpredictable workshop experiences that predictably work. Now, last week on the show, I shared a virtual fishbowl activity with Marissa and Yuri. This was something we were sandpitting in, in virtually possible. And I thought it was pretty interesting, a good activity and insight to share with all of you. This week, we are back with an interview and you're in for a real treat with today's guest. Her name is Meg Bolger. Now, Meg is a facilitator working to create a more beautiful and just world. How awesome is that value proposition, by the way? So she's a co-developer of Facilitator Cards, a deck of 60 processing tools for facilitators. You'll hear more about the cards in this conversation. I was absolutely blown away by how useful they could be in our work. Now, Meg is also the co-author of Unlocking the Magic of Facilitation and the co-creator of The Safe Zone Project, a free online resource for creating powerful, effective LGBTQ plus awareness and training workshops. In this conversation, we talk about how Meg found her feet in facilitation, how she became clever at structuring her facilitation activities and processes. I mean, how often do we just have all of these great ideas for activities and icebergs, but we don't know where to store them. So she's got ideas on that. And we also explore the role of facilitator, how we can often wear many hats and how it's important to differentiate between, you know, what your role is for that event, for that workshop. Is it educator, trainer? Is it a process facilitator? She also shares the value of making mistakes and close to the end of the conversation. So tune around for it. She also shares a really cool metaphorical question that she asked her participants in her virtual sessions. So stick around for that. I really like the question. Meg lives in Tacoma, Washington with her partner where you can find her making overly elaborate food, going on long walks and badly playing guitar. Learn more about Meg's current work at facilitator.cards and all the projects at megbolger.com. That's M-E-G-B-O-L-G-E-R.com. Plus her new venture is at virtual.facilitator.cards. She has some really cool stuff and I was really happy to geek out and talk to her about all things facilitation. Don't forget when the show is over, join our community of over 1,100 facilitators on the Flipchart Facebook group. You can find a link to that. Meg's contact details, where you can reach out to her, definitely do that in the show notes for this one over at firsttimefacilitator.com forward slash episode 146. I hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you so much for tuning in for another week of the show. Now let's move on to it. Here you go. I am delighted to welcome onto the First Time Facilitator podcast, Meg Bolger. Meg, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. As I was uh, reading up about your work on your website, megbolger.com, I was like, you're the perfect person for this show. You were sort of born to be on this podcast because you've done all this incredible stuff with facilitation. So can you please share with our audience what really led you down the path of facilitation? Did you always want to be a facilitator or like, how did you discover the work? 
Oh man, I would love to talk to somebody who like grew up wanting to be a facilitator. That sounds so cool. But I grew up, I guess, wanting to be a teacher. You know, I had that reference point, but it wasn't until college that I started realizing that facilitation was a thing. I went to a workshop on gender and sexuality when I was a sophomore in college, and I had a totally transformative experience of just like, whoa, we got to have such cool conversation and we got to talk about these things that are usually so scary to talk about. Like, what was that? That was cool. And I went up to the facilitator at the end of it and was like, how do you do that? And they were like, you just kind of go for it. And I was like, okay. And um, (laughs) they basically sent me the participant packet and they were like, yeah, do it. And I was like, I will. (laughs) And I don't really know why I was so, I didn't need a lot more permission than that, I guess, at 20. And that was my first exposure to a workshop setting or an environment like that. And I started facilitating uh, what we call the my college safe zone trainings, which are just like LGBTQ 101 workshops. I also was leading uh, first year orientation wilderness trips, just one every year. But that was also another way that I was getting exposed to this idea of like leading a group through an experience. And that's where I got exposed to outdoor ed and adventure therapy and uh, the world of experiential education. And so I was just, yeah, I was just a facilitation geek pretty quickly um, where I just, I loved facilitation. I loved getting to work with groups and making stuff that seemed scary, not scary. And I was pretty hooked on that from age 20. And by the time I graduated from college, at that point, I wanted to do social justice facilitation specifically. And then over the years, I would say my passion for social justice has really gone on par with my passion for facilitation. So I would say I started being very motivated by the content that I was facilitating, but I feel just as excited and really uh, feel like the the magic of the process of facilitation has um, continued to excite me and uh, get me uh, geeked out. So that's why I, I was like, yeah, I would love to talk about facilitation for as long as you want. So <laughs> that's awesome. And it's funny how that first workshop experience really stands out. The one that I went to was was actually in my city of Brisbane and it was Dr. Catherine Lloyd. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, It was actually about cities and how cities work. And it was just at the State Library. And I remember walking, well, I I also spoke to her. I sent her a testimonial, just was blown away by the power of all these random people that had never met each other in the space of a few hours, opening up to ridiculous levels. Like, how? How did? And I love how the advice that you were given was, you just do it, just throw yourself in. That's a lot. how a lot of us get our start. So when you, you were handed these materials and, you know, off you went, you got a group of people together. Like, how, how have you sort of built your own facilitation skills? Has it just been the experience or, you know, what resources? What have you done? Um, yeah, I would say that for me, a lot of it has been what I would say is trial by fire, where I'm learning by making mistakes in front of people. And I'm not sure that's the way I would recommend it. I mean, it's not the way I do recommend it in that I've built and spent a lot of time in the last 10 years building the materials that I wish I had had when I started. Because I think it would have been awesome if I didn't have to learn everything trial by fire and if I had had more support and resources. But for me, it has been a lot of trial by fire. 
it's been a lot of watching other facilitators and taking copious notes on like, oh, okay, this person is doing these things. I love that. Whenever I'm in a workshop, I'm kind of equally split between paying attention to what's happening to the material that I'm being given and paying attention to the process and the way they're doing everything. I was like, oh, I love that way of introducing people to each other, or I love that little activity structure. So I think a lot of it is also going to a lot of workshops and trainings and being a participant, but playing with both paying attention to the content that I'm trying to learn, but also to the process and exposing myself to to really great facilitators when possible, whether that's through conferences or co-facilitating with people who are better than me. Yeah, that's been a lot of my process. Yes, I do absolutely the same things. I'm making notes on the content, but then also going icebreaker or activity and then making a note somewhere else. What is your note process like? Because I've just, you know, I've got stuff that's just stacked everywhere and I'd I'd love to, I mean, you've written a book actually. So you've you've collected your notes. Uh, You've written a book called Unlocking the Magic of Facilitation. That would be a great place to store all your ideas and notes, right? By writing a book. Tell us more about about the book and uh, how that came to be. Yeah, so me and my co-author, Sam Killerman, we were doing a lot of train the trainers where we were teaching people how to facilitate these workshops that we had been uh, doing for the last three or four or five years ourselves. And in doing that, when we were teaching people uh, facilitation skills, we just realized through people asking us the same questions over and over again, what people were stuck on needed to know, or by watching people facilitate and being like, ooh, if they understood this concept, of vulnerability, or if they understood this concept of and versus but, that whole moment could have gone fundamentally different and better. So when we sat down to, we, the idea for the book came from running these train the trainers, having two days with participants, and at the end of those two days, always having material left where we were like, we would love to give you another 10 hours of things, but we have to go. And so the book eventually was basically our repository for like, if we had five days or three days with you, you know, if we had another 10 hours, we would give you all of this stuff. We don't. So now that you're started, you have connected with us, here's the book. And if you want to dig into it even more, you can. And I will say that I would say, you know, the process of writing a book or the process of making a free resource or a tool has been a really good like impetus to have to boil things down or a really good like reason Mm -hmm. to have to get specific. I think if I was just trying to learn for my own sake, it's, I don't have to be as organized and I'm not as organized when I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to do something for me. But as soon as I'm trying to do something for other people, then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well, I need to write this a little bit more clearly. I need to get my thoughts organized. And I think it's, it's that I share a lot with other people that I, I have to end up putting things into a particular structure or a particular framework. Yeah, I totally hear you on that, Meg. That's sort of like the podcast as well. So a couple of things on that, you said that you wish you didn't have to learn from every mistake, likewise. And so that's why I love just interviewing facilitators and finding out what they're doing working well or things that haven't worked so well. So, you know, the rest of the world can learn from that. And the second thing is, yeah, like even when I try and share some tips on the podcast, it's like I try to have just three main points and I would never, if it was on my own, I would never force myself into a sort of constraint of three main points and like, what is the key message, right? You never do that. You just, your ideas just float around your own head so there is value in that I love that you also uh you're into tactical stuff and you've got facilitation cards that's what they're called facilitation cards facilitator cards yeah 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 oh sorry facilitator lovely uh (laughs) tell us more about why you think using something tangible like cards is, is such a useful idea and what's on your cards that really inspires conversation 
Yeah. So I actually, I'll take it back to what you were just talking about around taking notes on uh, like those little activities that facilitators are doing. So I had done that for years. Sam, who's um, the co-developer of Facilitator Cards with me, um, we were both doing that for years. And all of us probably have those locked away in our brains, but not necessarily written down anywhere. And facilitator cards were born out of this like happy accident where one day we were not as prepared for a training as we needed to be. And we were like, we're going to have to do this whole thing, like building the curriculum as we go. We don't have the agenda and we're going to have to do it responsibly for two days. And so we were like, okay, what can we prepare? If we can't prepare the content, what can we prepare? And we were like, okay, we can write down every activity that we know how to facilitate between the two of us, like every structure, you know, that we know. So whether that's, some of them will be really obvious to seasoned facilitators like popcorn share. We don't think of that as a structure, but it is like a, a way to have people participate, right? Or like mind mapping or fish bowls. Like we wrote down 20 or 30 of these things and we went into this workshop and we were like, okay. And on breaks, we would figure out which one are we going to use? Like, okay, we'll use this one, this one, and this one. We had them on index cards. And after that training, we both kept making them. We were like, oh, that was so useful and helpful to like have these activities not locked away in my brain, but actually physically in front of me. And rather than like, there's a lot of facilitator tools that I love that are cards that participants will use, right? So yes. it'll be cards with images on them. And you'll have people say like, you know, pick a card that uh, represents something that you're taking away from the workshop today. And they, they might pick like a stream, right? And they'll be like, I just feel like I really feel like we're flowing in the right direction now. And it'll spark a metaphor. Or there's another set of cards I love called We Connect Cards, which uses like like questions, right? To, to um, They have a series of really great questions and you can use them for lots of different icebreakers. Facilitator cards are not for participants. They're for facilitators to use when they are planning their trainings or when they're okay. like live training. So a lot of those ones that I just listed, I've got them on my desk because I use them all the time. Oh, yeah, like cool. are, yeah. are like that's fishbowl. So it, it says it on the front and you can write on the card itself. So you can write your notes. So a couple of days ago, I was facilitating. Yeah, yesterday I was I was facilitating <laughs> a, a group yeah. of facilitators. Twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> I was facilitating like this little gathering of facilitators and this is what we did. We did these four cards and we started with an analogy, like an icebreaker analogy. We went and figured out which of these six ideas do we want to talk about. So we use vanishing options. We broke into subcommittees and then we ended with thinking and feeling. So easy. Yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of us do this, like I would say a lot of seasoned facilitators or practice facilitators, you kind of do this, but not as like structured as this. And I had never taken my notes and actually broken them down into like these specific things until we started developing the cards. And the cards are... Um, they're categorized by like, there's four different types. So there's cards for surfacing emotions. There's cards for generating ideas, for clarifying the ideas, and then for making decisions. And I had never categorized the activities that I knew in my head in that way before we started developing them. And they're also grouped by like group size. So like, is it a pair activity? Is it a, is a large group, small group? And then what props, what props are needed to facilitate them? And that's like an overview of facilitator cards. 
and I now I use them all the time. And this is also now how I take notes on new activities. So when I hear a new activity, I can put them into basically the facilitator card framework. I'm like, okay, it's this group size. I would probably use it for surfacing emotions and you need this these types of props. And this is my like three sentence gist of the activity. So now that's how I like internalize new activities is in that framework. That is awesome. That's so awesome. And it makes the design process so much more fun, right? Because as a first-time facilitator, my process was like open a Google Doc and like have the, you know, just write the outcomes. And I hate it. Like I just, I really don't like being in front of a computer and being forced into that, writing it out when it is such a dynamic activity, right? Planning a workshop. And I love yeah. that with the cards, like it's like a, a, like a game of cards. You throw them out, you can move things around, right? Yeah. You don't have to like scroll up and down a screen and cut and paste. It's like, oh, I don't know if that would work well. Like, what do you think, co-facilitator? Let's move it around. And you could literally just take a photo, Yep. And it's like, that's the plan. That's the plan. How cool is that? Yeah, it's awesome. And like with co-facilitators too, you now have like a common language, you know, like some of us will call the same thing, different things, but when you have Mm -hmm. a a common vocabulary, it's a lot easier. And I also find it much easier to adapt where I'll be in the middle of a workshop Mm -hmm. and I'll be like, okay, like I'm going to send you off into breakout rooms for like 10 minutes and then we'll come back and we'll debrief. And in those 10 minutes when they're away, I'm like, okay, we need a new card (laughs) to deal with this. And I'm like actively searching through my deck of like, okay, we need, I need a large group decision maker because we are way off base and I can find mm. that and then be like, okay, good. That, that's what we'll do when we come back. Yes. Cause I've been in situations and, and not so much virtually, no, but it's more of a face-to-face environment where things have really sort of changed or we really need to go down and have a conversation that we weren't expecting to have. Um, but it's time for that to surface. And so you give the, the group, uh, we'll have a bit of a break. And when you come back and then it's like, during that break, like everyone's just, they're all fine having a cup of tea, but you're like, what the heck, what activity am I going to do? Like, uh, will I bring people in circles? And so the fact that, and I guess also, I'm just really reflecting on a situation that happened earlier this year where this happened, where it just got, Mm. we had to talk about something. And I was, my cortisol levels were really high and I was creating all this stress. So I couldn't actually think clearly of what next, of what to do next. So having something like that is, everyone talks about having something in your back pocket, like, You can literally have it in your back pocket. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is this big. So for those listening, it's a little bit bigger than a standard deck of cards, but the box is a little bit bigger, but the cards themselves are the size of a standard issue, like playing card. And that's why when we were developing them, like in that happy accident (laughs) training, it was that that we couldn't have pulled up our computer on break and been like, we're just doing some quick research about what to do. You know, like there's a ton of websites and there's a ton of books that a lot of us reference, right. For, um, or might, might go to, but you can't do that in the middle of a training. And, and it's, you're not going to do that in front of clients, but also like, you're not going to think to do that and you're not going to feel accessible. So that's why they have to be these like kind of, uh, yeah, it's right there. And I totally agree with you with the cortisol levels and you're not in your most creative mode in the middle of a facilitation a lot of times, especially if you're having to adapt last minute. So that's, that's why I think they're so helpful in, in that, um, in those panic, in those panic moments or improvised moments, you don't have to think of the 15 activities you could do. They're just. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess my backup for that one was just asking the group, you know, what do you want? But then they still like, you can do that. And then it's like still trying to find like a process to, 
to get there right. to, to what they want, right? So that's that's your role. Uh, love yeah. that. So talk about your facilitation games. In terms of your preparation, now you could pretty much just bring a deck of cards and go, like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> In terms of the, the way yeah. that you get yourself ready, uh, I know virtual is very different. Um, how do you prepare for, like, I guess your own energy for, for a big facilitation event, something that's, you know, new client? I'm not sure that virtual looks a lot different. I mean, it looks a lot different in function for sure, but I don't know if my my um, preparation is that much different. I would say the cards have made the most difference to me in that I, I really do like use them when I am preparing for a facilitation. So if I know what the goals are, then I'm going immediately into, okay, just like with my list of goals, what are the different structures that I want to use? Um, what are the different processes? What's the kind of arc? or the flow and what are my backups but getting to the goals of a facilitation I think is harder than people think like to clarify what really those goals are and especially I've worked with a lot of different um, you know organizations and companies over the years and what you think are goals on paper when people say like these are our learning outcomes are not good enough to develop a facilitation from, right? You need to make them more specific or more actionable or more bite-sized. And I recently have also been using the cards to actually help me get to my goals. So I will self-facilitate. Like I will, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to do some self-reflection. I'm going to do some mind mapping. I'm not going to evaluate my ideas at the beginning. I'm just going to try to create a bunch of them and then I'll narrow and clarify later. And so I've been using that arc of like generate all the possibilities, you know, don't judge them and then work into like clarifying my ideas and narrowing down to like what is absolutely necessary when I'm, when I'm just creating the goals and the processes is the easy part for me, but getting to the goals I find to be much more challenging. Yeah. And um, I love that you use your own tools on yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's the I main reason. Stuck, yeah, yeah. You get stuck and it's like, what do I tell my groups? It's like, if this was me in a group situation, this was happening, what I would do is like, I would get outside, I would get some post-it notes, I'd, you know, and, yep. and we really like, I, I know sometimes when I get, I try to think of something, I just try and push it further by just writing more and it just doesn't work. So it's, it's nice that we can use the tools on ourselves sometimes my husband is like can you stop using your tools on me when we're trying to like make a decision he's like I'm, I'm not it's just part of who I am so yeah totally yeah so I'm curious about you said now that you're 50% social justice 50% facilitation I can see those things weaving in very nicely together there's a beautiful overlap there and both complement each other do you ever facilitate workshops where you have a really strong opinion and that role of facilitator it's hard yeah I mean every social justice workshop I've ever facilitated I've had a very strong opinion right and I have done mostly voluntary workshops so that means that more often the people in the room are generally in the same direction or uh, mindset than me but oftentimes that's not true and so I I have facilitated a lot of content that I would say I, I have a very strong opinion about and for me I guess I think of the role or the word facilitator to mean something very specific. I know some people use it interchangeably as like teacher, right? And, or, or even just like educator more broadly. And they'll be like, oh yeah, I was, I was facilitating. And then they'll be like, here's my PowerPoint. And they'll be like, click through. And I'm like, at what point was their interaction with the group? And they're like, not really. We mostly just did a Q and A at the end. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I wouldn't use a word facilitator in that context. Um, And so when I have a really strong opinion about something, I guess 
the approach I sometimes take is that what am I trying to make? So a facilitator means to make easy. What am I trying to make easy in this process? Am I trying to get them to talk honestly about their opinions? Is, is that what my, my job is? Is it I'm trying to make it easier for them to agree with me or agree with like the particular opinion that I hold? I think that's, that's a little bit trickier. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that I, I take a very like facilitator, like what is it that I can do with them uniquely to help them I don't know, whatever it is, like get to a, a new stage of understanding, help people connect in the room. To me, I often see that as really valuable, even to achieving the, the goals that I have. But as soon as I snap into like, my job here is to change your mind. I think for me, that's, mm. that's usually where it gets pretty dicey. Yes. Yeah. No, that, you answered that beautifully. It wasn't an easy question. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, cause I do ask myself that as well. And I think it also comes back to, it's kind of like coaching as well, where sometimes it's hard where you have some expertise around a topic and you're talking to someone that may not understand or have an awareness. And it's really easy to just, and Michael Bungostenia, his book, The Advice Trap talks all about that. It's very easy just to get, have the advice monster and just like attack. But he talks about being more curious and asking questions. And I love how you, the question that you ask yourself is how am I making this easier in the context of this or this and, and clarifying that for yourself. That's awesome. Yeah. And knowing that like, there are going to be times where just being very honest with myself about like, when am I being a facilitator and when am I being just like a lecturer or a teacher and yes. when am I snapping into those modes and knowing that, nope, this isn't actually the time for questions. Like I'm just delivering information at this point. And so I do have this particular expertise and I'm just sharing and making that very clear in the structure of the time where participants are invited to push back or, or to disagree or to ask questions. There, I think making explicit space for that is really important. And I think there are times where I'm like, oh, I'm just delivering information here. Like I'm not actually in facilitator mode and that's okay with me as well. Yeah. And I, I like that you've set it up there and, and made that obvious in terms of the structure and, and the way that you communicate it. So you mentioned that you were running these, these train the trainer workshops for two days and people were left hanging wanting more. What kind of common things came up in that workshop in, in terms of maybe pain points or opportunities to improve? I know we're going back, back a few yeah. years here. <laughs> um, well, I think it's the same. I, I would say it's the same struggles that a lot of people are consistently having and now virtual has thrown us into a whole new world of these struggles reappearing and us and us being like I knew how to do this in person I knew how to get the quiet people to talk in person I don't know how to do that on zoom anymore um so I I would say yeah there's there's just like some classic issues or challenges that people have getting people to participate who are reticent getting other people to stop participating, understanding what level of vulnerability you can ask from participants and like mm -hmm. what is the right amount of risk to bring into an environment, how to handle conflict and disagreement, especially if it is around fraught or hot topics. The idea that we were kind of speaking to a little bit of what used to come up in workshops a lot was this idea of neutrality and whether facilitators need to be neutral, which I don't believe they do. I just believe they need to be able to navigate that very actively, but, and to never lie to a participant and just be like, I just don't care here. Like if you do, then you do, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good long list of, or not a long list, but like th those would be some of the themes that I think are ever present and ever present challenges for people. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you spoke about that learning curve 
and how the context has switched now like with that ladder of learning it's like we're all we're all we're thrown back in terms of well yeah as you said we'll very comfortable in person doing all the stuff and managing the behavior, driving the engagement and even ourselves, our own energy, right? And then moving yeah. to this virtual landscape. It's been a real leveler, I think. How have you <laughs> sort of adapted? How are you finding it? Are you enjoying it? Like, where are you in terms of, I'm not going to give you an ask, you know, zero from one till 10, what do you think? But um, um, it's your yeah. current status. So I actually asked facilitators this last night and I thought it was a really fun way to talk about it. And I would love to know your answer to this, but I asked people to describe their relationship with virtual facilitation as if it was a real relationship in their life. Like, I love that. like <laughs> they were, yeah. so some of the highlights were somebody was like, you know, I feel like we have real highs and lows. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, I love you and you are the best. And other times I'm like, I might need to break up with you because you're driving me crazy. And Somebody else described virtual facilitation as um, they're like, it feels like the partner that you really like, but none of your friends and family do like that. You're like, no, just give them a chance. It's they're really great <laughs> when you get to know them. And I feel like for me, virtual facilitation has been like an unexpected relationship. I didn't think we were going to ever really meet again. We had yep. seen each other once in a while pre-2020. And I was like, not for me. I don't think we're a good match. And then March came around and it was like, oh, you're the only option? Okay, I will reconsider then because I do love facilitating like and I for me when I don't facilitate when I don't facilitate for long periods of time I get sad I'm not as happy and bright and uh, energetic a person and I have been surprised <laughs> the virtual facilitation has surprised me in the ways that it has been good. So there are things I like about it. I am a facilitation geek. So I'm like, oh, that's a cool function. You know, I read the Zoom updates now. That's a weird thing. Never thought I'd be that person. Um, I definitely went back to, to being a, a beginner and learning a lot of things. But I also had a good baseline of like, I know it's easier to get people to share if you put them into small groups first. So I'm going to put you into small groups before I ask you to share in the Zoom. And that there's some like things that have easily translated and that I think are still when I introduce them to people who don't facilitate, they're like, oh, I just ask questions in the large group. And I'm like, and how does that go? And they're like, pretty badly. I was like, yeah, don't, yeah. you know, just yeah. pair share, chat, have people elaborate on their ideas rather than think them out loud in the, in the large group for the first time. So yeah, there's tricks that I, that easily translate. And then there's some things that you can do on virtual that you can't do in person. There are interesting things in that direction too, that I've, I've really liked, like live polling. And there's things that the space creates and, and makes possible. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, that we're even talking right now. You know, yes, yeah. <laughs> like that's. I think that's probably the, the biggest joy for me is how it's global and so connected. And then I really like that question about the relationship because it's just such a beautiful question. What I was doing as you were talking, and I really, I, I was present listening to you, but I was also yeah, thinking absolutely. about. Who are the friends that would remind me of this? Like, who's my virtual friend in real life that I could relate uh -huh. as, the, as the analogy? And I think it is. It's like that person, I really like what you said, that you haven't seen for a while, but then just comes back into your life and, and you're obsessed with it. Like, you're obsessed <laughs> with that. You know, yeah, you can get like a That's new awesome. friend. And same as you. It's funny in the Flipchart Facebook group, the second Zoom posts an update and we, we share it. Like, everyone's on there going, oh, who would have thought? <laughs> what yeah. I love that you say you kick out on facilitation because yeah I certainly do as well and there's a well everyone listening certainly does as well <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> awesome
Yeah. So advice for first-time facilitators, people that, well, yeah, first, we'll, we'll go back to basics, back to the first-time facilitator. Uh, think about you as a 20-year-old. What would you tell yourself to avoid all the heartache of, of learning from some of the mistakes? <laughs> Well, I think the first piece of advice would just be that you are going to make mistakes. I know that's really basic, Mm -hmm. but that you can do all of the research in the world. And the other thing I want to make very Mm -hmm. clear, because I I hear this sometimes and I just disagree with it, is that I make mistakes all the time. I facilitated something yesterday and I send people into breakout rooms with very little structure and very little like context. And when I did, after they were there, I was like, that wasn't great. I could have done that better. I could have given them way more structure and way more interesting prompts or helped them like have really productive conversations in that time. And I don't know how many times I've sent people into small groups, hundreds at this point, like I'm 10 years into facilitation. So I don't want someone to be like, oh, I'm only making these mistakes because I'm a beginner. Maybe, but also it's possible that there's no point where you're going to stop making mistakes. They just hopefully will get less and less severe because some people I think the reason I want to share that advice is that I think some people think they have to hit a certain threshold before they get to do it. They're like, I really need to yes. be way better at this before I start. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's how it works. Like, yes, do your research if you want to, if you want to read up on things, if you're asking people like, hey, do you think I could do this? And people are like, no, you are way too angry at people. You should not do that yet. Like <laughs> maybe heed that advice. You know, there's some people who there's certain topics that get them really heated and I'm like maybe that's not a good one to hold space for people to have all sorts of feelings in you know like it's okay if you want to do that but also that's going to be really challenging so like set yourself up for success in that way but you also don't have to wait till you like reach a certain level of knowledge threshold I think to to start facilitating. I love that and you've just role modeled that by being someone that as a 20 year old we're handed these materials and, and told to go for it. That's probably the best advice that you could give. And I think when I reflect on my journey, I was, what uh, your comment really relates to me because I thought I had to be, you know, had have some initials after my name to be in front of the room. But it got to a stage where I was sitting in workshops and thinking, and it was all about the content for me when I first started. I think I know a bit more about this person or I think I could do this in a more engaging way. Those were the two sort of things that came up, like like a little voice in your ear. I think you could do it a bit better. But I think even prior to that, there was opportunities that I could have taken. So I think your advice is extremely relevant. And I love that you've shared that you make mistakes. Me too. Even just like the shirt choice on a Zoom call. I wore a shirt the other week. It was stripey. And like, it was giving like, people would like, for some reason, my oh, little like light was my microphone. Yeah. And it was like, it's uh-huh. really like distorted effect. I mean, how do you know <laughs> unless know. you try, right? And no yeah. biggie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No I think that we get hung up a lot. I wanted to speak to you a little bit, the, the content piece, what you're talking about of like, we get really hung up on the content of like, I need to be a content expert. And to me, the beauty of, faci- I know people who are completely content neutral facilitators where they'll get brought into a company and they're just like, we need help with our strategic vision. And the person's like, okay. And they're like, and we manufacture forms for car parts. And they're like, great. I don't know anything about the car industry, but that's okay because <laughs> yeah. they're a facilitator. They're not a content expert. And so So I think that's the one extreme of facilitation, right? And the other extreme would be somebody who is a content expert, but who's using facilitation to bring in engagement, to increase the amount of participation in their sessions, to increase like, um, yeah, just like interaction and absorption of knowledge. And both of those extremes exist. And I would say that if you're like, I really just want to help 
people engage with this more than I want to deliver content, then you don't have to be so worried about the content expertise aspect of it. But we spend so long getting really good at our content. And then I see people and I'm like, but you've spent no time getting really good at your process. And so I think I would just encourage people like when you're at the 501 level of content, you know, and your job as a facilitator is to get people to the like 201 then or the 101 then you might be good the far the more knowledge you know away from your participants I think is sometimes really hard like I did gender and sexuality education for seven or eight years and I kept learning and my participants kept being beginners and I was better at relating to them at the beginning so for me like actually knowing more and more became harder and harder to reduce the amount I was sharing and I would love to see more facilitators get dorky or get interested in the process (laughs) like getting really good at the process because I think that's a huge difference maker and the more and more you know about your content sometimes actually gets not it's not gets in the way as in you shouldn't learn but just know that it brings you farther and farther from your participants. Oh my gosh. Yes, it does. Yes. I had an absolute example. I was running these leadership workshops last year for pretty high level leaders. And so I was reading a lot, like getting into the neuroscience and everything else. And then I remember running a graduate program earlier this year about, and they wanted to stop on leadership. And I just, this is a mistake I made. I, I dove straight into the neuroscience. Like what the heck? That's ridiculous. I don't even know what Kobe's time management matrix looks like. You know what I mean? Like it was <laughs> looking at different models. The curse mm-hmm. of knowledge. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. No one's ever, this is why I love the show. No one's ever brought that up in 145 episodes. You're the first yeah. to talk about that. Beginner's mindset is, I think, what I would call it, or or I think even maybe me and Sam talk about it in the book, but the idea of a beginner's mindset of like your participants are almost always beginners, right? And really like how you segment knowledge, how you give them information is going to make a huge difference. And And so often we can overload people with too much too early. And then they're just like, well, if I can't get the neuroscience, I guess I can't get the matrix that you're referring to. And you're like, oh no, definitely not. You definitely could have gotten the matrix and they're like but you gave me the neuroscience and scared me you know like too much so I think it's I think of them as sometimes as like lego bricks of just like you just want to give people one brick and they're like okay cool that's good and you're like okay here's another one and then they're like okay but if you give them like a whole bag of lego bricks at at the beginning they're just going to be like I don't know what to do with these and so if this is what being a good leader looks like I guess I'm not going to do it but if we had just handed them one at a time um, it would have been fine Brilliant, Meg. That's awesome. Great note to, to sort of end on, even though I don't want to end because I'm sure you got more gold dust. Um, <laughs> if our listeners would love to find out more about you, your cards, the book, where should we send them following this? Yeah. So for facilitator cards, we have the website www.facilitator.cards. And just today we launched a virtual guide to the cards. So the cards were developed with physical, (laughs) with in-person facilitation in mind. And obviously all of us are still wrapping our brains around this new virtual world. So we have this virtual guide and you can check it out at virtual.facilitator.cards. Um, there's going to be, there's eight cards on there right now, and we're going to be releasing four every week for the next couple of weeks. So that'll be really fun. Um, and exciting in it. It's got some different apps on like the different software that we're using to, you know, to make the cards work. Sometimes it's just zoom. Sometimes it's mural or aha slides or Google, the Google suite. So that's been really fun to develop. And then the book, um, unlocking the magic of facilitation is at facilitationmagic.com. 
and everything else I do, including those, are at megbolger.com. M-E-G-B-O-L-G-E-R. Sounds like you've got um, as many domain names as I do. <laughs> Every time I get an yeah. idea, it's like, I'm going to buy the domain name and yeah. That's how you make it real. That's how you make it real for sure. Yeah, it is. Meg, it's been absolutely amazing just chatting to you today. We've covered a lot of different uh, topics and I'm sure we could have done a deep dive on like each of those, right, for easily totally. an hour. So I'm really excited to follow more of what you do and I'm excited to share this conversation with listeners. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to geek out anytime. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around. You've reached the end of another episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Connect with the show at firsttimefacilitator.com or follow me on Instagram at Leanne Hughes to find out what I'm up to during the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone who will also appreciate the insight and make it easier for yourself and subscribe to the show in your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and chat to you next week.